This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by our Africa and LNG editor, Ed Reed and digital journalist, Hamish Penman. And we'll kick off this week with profit results out this morning as we speak from Harbour Energy, the largest producer of oil and gas in the UK North Sea who have said this morning their profits were wiped out by the windfall tax or energy profits levy from the UK government. And this is the firm which is making, we understand, hundreds of people in Aberdeen redundant. Uh, And they say that is mainly due to the windfall tax, and we'll come back to that. But I'll just give you some figures here, uh, at risk of losing the uh, listeners on figures and numbers. Pre-tax, Harbour say 24 billion dollars for 2022 after tax just eight million dollars so that gives you a sense of the scale here and basically harbour have put down a 1.5 billion dollar hit if you like for their deferred tax liability their costs going forward for the windfall tax as i understand it through to march of 2028 which is when it's expected to end so that gives you a sense as i say of the scale of the hits they're taking because of this uk government legislation so I'll just set a bit of background here for those who may not know what on earth Harbour Energy is or their story. Uh, This is the, as I say, the largest producer in the UK. It came from the reverse takeover of Premier Oil by Chrysler in 2021. This is their first full year of trading after that and having listed in London. And before that, Harbour's predecessor, Chrysler, had been building up this portfolio, multi-billion dollar deals with Shell, ConocoPhillips, big exposure in the UK, And then, of course, the Premier Oil deal closed in April of 21, which, as I say, comes to bring us this largest producing oil and gas firm in the UK that we have today. So we had the windfall tax hit them. And, you know, we've talked about this in this podcast before, but about 90% of Harbour's operations are in the UK, where they're now taxed at a 75% rate on their profits. So they don't have those international uh, profits coming in from operations in the same way that a Shell or a BP might. They don't have major spending pipelines ahead either, so they can't claim the windfall tax investment incentives linked to that in the same way, which kind of brings us to this point. I think the profits figure illustrates this wipeout, of pro- as they describe, and Harbour's been clear that they're going to have to diversify and invest elsewhere outside of the UK now. Linda Cook on the call this morning, their CEO, talked up Mexico, talked up Southeast Asia in particular. And they're basically, you know, very exposed to this uh, windfall tax. And as a result, as they say, are cutting hundreds of jobs. And the CEO said it's too early to say exactly how many, but a review will complete in the second half of this year. And what she did say is from 2024 onwards, they expect Harbour to save $40 million annually from these redundancies which I guess gives us some sense of the scale, but not really in terms of how many people they might actually cut. 40 million per year sounds pretty substantial, though. This is all going on, these complaints about the UK government policy and redundancies, while at the same time Harbour's highlighting its solid financial position, announcing today $300 million of new share buybacks and dividends. That's on top of 200 million of dividends during 2022, 400 million of share buybacks. It's a lot of money being spent, being sent to shareholders' uh, pockets whilst they're also cutting jobs. So I asked uh, Linda Cook, you know, what's what's the message to workers? How can you juxtapose those two, you know, financial concerns causing redundancies whilst also paying out 
these millions in in buybacks, etc. So she said that you know 2022 was the first distribution they've made to their shareholders. You know, many of which have been invested, waiting for about seven years or so for any kind of return. And what she basically said was, Harbor needs to keep investor confidence up somehow. And that can't really be done through the share price because that kind of tumbled pretty substantially off the back of the UK government windfall tax. So that's quite a business case approach, clinical perhaps, but it's the, the card she has to play. Uh, we all know how horrible um, redundancies can be on people's lives, but I guess ultimately it's a business uh, and that's where she's got to come from. A couple more points and I'll stop rambling. A suggestion that the, the hangover a number of jobs from the Premier Oil Chrysler merger is a big factor in these job cuts over and above the windfall tax. Uh, Linda Cook conceded that to an extent, um, you know, that there would have, there may well, well have been redundancies uh, coming absent of the windfall tax. And the last point here, I think, you know, the EPL, as it's called, still has the moral argument, I think, for the general public. People are struggling to pay with their bills. So, you know, tax the oil and gas industry's windfall profits, and, and that's fine. The issue is that it's been put in place with this broad brush stroke fashion. Um, you know, the North Sea used to be dominated by global players who were more insulated by global profits, but now it's mainly made up of smaller independents who aren't insulated in the same way, and they are impacted in some cases in much harsher ways than the rest of, you know, big oil would be. So there's maybe not enough nuance in the policy to account for that. I'm not sure whether we'll get anything new from the Chancellor in next week's budget. But um, yeah, the, the ask is for a price floor. We're seeing firms cutting spending, and this is just a, a continuation of that narrative, I'd say. It's also tough to how much morality should feed into global tax initiatives. It's uh, <laughs> How much crossover is there there that this policy was rolled out in what may and people were it was people were pretty on board with it and the proof has been somewhat in the pudding in that there's been a lot of a lot of the worst fears of the industry have come to fruition and actually is the policy doing more harm than good potentially it depends what side of the fence you fall on and that but yeah it's, i think we all knew that harbour were going to be hit pretty hard by the windfall tax it's interesting to now get figures on that and to see the extent to which they have been i was gonna say penalized that's probably not the right word to say it i think that's the way they feel yeah I think penalized would probably be the way they're that certainly like it was it was a hell of a pile on this morning um uh you know linda cook she was she was she was not mincing her words um but yeah i i, I guess uh we, you know, this was a media huddle. We didn't get the full interview, um, but, you know, something's better than nothing, I suppose. But, you know, uh, it's not really clear at this stage, you know, what the strategy is for Harbour for the North Sea. You know, they're this massive uh, UK company. They couldn't have possibly predicted this is going to happen a year after they finally listed and completed their merger. Um, so, you know, does, did all those assets go into runoff mode now? Um what happens with Mexico and Southeast Asia? You know, there's all kinds of questions up in the air on strategy. Can I can I just ask? I mean, it does seem that, that Harbour seems particularly hard hit. What is it that Harbour has done wrong, not done enough of to be so penalised in this way? Because it, it feels like they, they've been clobbered a lot harder than some other companies. Are they, are they, are they failed to sort of, is it because they're not investing enough in new projects? I, I think... Uh, I think it's actually the the opposite. Um, I believe uh, that during COVID, when a, a large number of North Sea companies obviously were cutting spending and cutting thousands of jobs for that matter, Harbour actually continued to invest in projects. And now that they've made that investment, their pipeline's kind of shuttered at this point um, because they've made those big uh, investments. After they'd made those investments, they were hit with this policy. 
And that means that they can't now claim back the 91% investment incentive that others can for new projects because they've already spent on their new projects. So they've just been kind of hit with this perfect storm, if you like, of erratic fiscal policy, I think is the way they put it, to be honest. Uh, you know, it's it's it's... It just comes across a bit unlucky, if I'm being honest. Um, now, again, you know, I think it would be wrong to suggest that the windfall tax is the only thing playing a hand here. We've mentioned the Premier Royal Chrysler merger. So basically everyone I've spoken to about this has been pretty agreed that, you know, that they might be underplaying that side of it. Um, you know, again, Linda Cook, I did ask her about this today and she did say, yeah, we well, we, we're doing a management review and whatever else. And it could be absent the windfall tax, there would have been uh, redundancies from that, uh, that merger. Um, so, you know, she said it'd be hard to pinpoint um, which rules will be from what reason, as in which rules will be windfall tax, which rules will be merger, etc. So, you know, I, I think there are some people who, who suspect Harbour are using the windfall tax to uh, facilitate that uh, to an extent. Now, I'm not saying that, I'm saying others are. Um, but I, I think I think it's, I think think it's what it is fair to say is that there are, there's more than one factor at play here. But ultimately, yeah, if they're going to cut investment as a direct result of the windfall tax going forward, yeah, you could see the correlation there with jobs. So, um, but no, ultimately, I think in answer to your question, Ed, you know, they they did they did the, the the right thing during COVID, and it does seem that they've been a just very unlucky. I think. Um, I mean, to the extent of oh, there might be a rebound uh, in a few years' time after COVID's gone, and oil prices might go up, and then we might get a windfall tax a levy on us. You know, if 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 someone had the foresight to implement that at the height of COVID when everything was shut right down and they were just trying to get through day to day when, you know, trying to keep people safe offshore, you know, I just I just don't see it. So I don't think they've done anything wrong, but they are the largest one out there uh, with uh, a pretty low spending pipeline. So it's just this confluence of factors, I think, that are rather unfortunately hitting them. Um, but uh, but there we are. So we'll probably park Harbour for there, but we'll stay on windfall tax because Hamish is up next with some in-depth analysis from Aberdeen Uni. The Megawatt Hour is the latest podcast series from Energy Voice Out Loud in paid partnership with BDO. I'm editor Andrew Dykes, and in the latest episode of our Energy Storage box set series, I'm joined by BDO corporate finance partner David Bevan and Nicholas Beatty, a founder and director of Zenobi. This episode sees us take a closer look at the role of finance and investment in the battery storage sector, exploring how investors and companies deploy capital, what makes a bankable project, whether expectations are changing as the market matures, and perhaps most importantly, what investors expect to see in return. You can listen to this and all other episodes of the Megawatt Hour now via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Mish, we've got some, yes, in-depth analysis of the EPL from oil and gas doyen Professor Alec Kemp. Uh, what's the findings here? Yeah, timely report, um, given what's played out in the, the 48 hours after it was after it was published. But yeah, entitled Economic Impact of the Energy Profits Levy on UKCS Investments Projects. Catchy. Lovely, isn't it? You can find it in its entirety online, and I would definitely uh, recommend giving it a read if you're into that sort of thing. If you're not, I wouldn't bother, of course. But um, but I did read the entire thing, and it was very, very insightful on a number of issues. Um, it involves a whole heap of modelling done by, um, as you mentioned, Professor Alex Kemp, who is our 
oil and gas spiritual leader, always on hand to help us understand things as and when. And that's quite frequently, to be honest. Uh, and Arturo Regalado as well, an energy economist at Aberdeen Uni, formerly of IHS Market. Um, he also shares a lot of interesting analysis on LinkedIn, so I'd check out that too. Um, but this investigation kind of really sought to test some of the criticisms with the windfall tax, um, provide some empirical evidence to back them up or indeed disprove them. Um, and I suppose the big headline finding was uh, that investments in at least some uh, new North Sea developments, particularly those that are particularly small, uh, is likely to be discouraged due to the UK's current fiscal regime. Um, it's basically they've just made some projects more hassle than they're actually worth. Um, and kind of going by a chat I had with Professor Kemp, I think it was a couple of months ago, after the Scottish Energy Strategy was published, he said that around 300 fields could be at risk due to the EPL. Now, a lot of those will be small tiebacks that are pretty small capex um, and are actually probably what the North Sea is after generally because they're less emitting and can kind of keep assets ticking over for a while. Um, but yeah, the pair developed an economic model of three oil fields, a small, a medium and a large one intended to be typical of North Sea assets of a recent vintage. Uh, and from there, they were kind of able to run some direct scenarios to chart most likely outcomes. So other findings from it, windfall tax places a higher burden on North Sea fields that have recently come on stream, kind of those since 2019, rather than new projects. Uh, they found the fiscal regime pushes operators to phase their spending, kind of delay first production, while taking advantage of current investment relief, so maybe some of the big projects. They didn't name names, but the likes of your Cambos and your Rosebanks, operators might look to try and start those up around 2028 when this policy is due to wrap up. Um, and I suppose that would actually curb taxes, and that was something that was pointed out because they're not going to be able to tap into the revenues that's generated from production from those. Uh, there'll also be a knock-on for DCOM as well. That was something that was kind of a concern that was raised way back at the start of this energy profits saga. Um, it's not tax deductible, so project. Uh, Companies are just going to push those projects down the line as they have done for about the last what three or four years since COVID anyway. Um, so I suppose the, the big thing now is the industry now does have the empirics to, to back up its concerns about the windfall tax. And I'm sure OUK and the like will continue to sing the same hymn sheet and kind of call for the changes that they have been making ahead of next week's budget. But just going on a bit of analysis from KPMG, it doesn't look like there might be a a hell of a lot in there for the oil and gas sector, if what they say is uh, comes comes to be true. Yeah, I mean that's 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 maybe what we should get into here. I mean, we've got the spring budget next week, with uh, yeah, a question of will there be anything in the in there related to the windfall tax in terms of improving things or not, and that also comes amid what we've got the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which seems to be attracting a lot of investors over to the U.S., which seems to have a more streamlined regulatory policy, fiscal policy, um, better investment incentives. And then the UK is just being left behind with these kind of erratic uh, policies. And, and Hamish, as you kind of say, you know, this is to do with some small oil fields not being um, picked up for investment. Well, I mean, newsflash, the vast majority of the ones that are left in the UK are small ones. So how are you taking that industry over whilst uh, all this is going on? So it's quite a lot for the Chancellor to weigh up. I gather that this uh, fiscal, this review into whether or not they'll at least put in place a price floor to the windfall tax is 
potentially on the cards, but we'll we'll see. I mean, the, the, the mechanism in Rishi Sunak's initial policy was that if oil and gas prices dropped to a normal level, then the windfall tax would end. And there was a question there on the definition of what a normal level would be, but at least the mechanism was in place. With Jeremy Hunt, there's no such price floor in place. So if industry is being taxed at 75% of their profits and then there's an oil price crash and, you know, there's been plenty of them in recent times. We mentioned COVID a moment ago. Um, then what happens? I mean, there'll, there'll be no development and there'll be no investment and it'll just be all in runoff mode and there'll be more jobs being lost at a time when they're trying to tick everything over into offshore wind and carbon capture and storage and all the rest of it. So I think there's questions there in terms of, you know, does the Chancellor heed this kind of research, the noise is coming from harbour energy and otherwise, and then you've also got this great industrial wave coming through from Joe Biden's bill in the US. So there's a lot playing out there and we'll be interested to see whether or not anything actually comes out next week i suspect maybe not yeah it, it does feel unlikely doesn't it i mean i think the uh that, that question of sort of uh, what political price would come in terms of sort of you know being seen to give the you know uh the out of favor oil and gas industry a handout feels like uh that is not going to go down well other with the conservatives who are you know obviously sort of you know trying to balance the books and you know obviously with an eye on the next uh next election but also you know the Labour Party who as you always say Alistair look like they might uh, might, might, might might be in power next and, and obviously would love a chance to clobber the Conservatives for giving giving handouts to to the energy industry I mean I think you know you bring up the US and I think there is clearly uh, interest there uh, stemming largely from the from the Inflation Reduction Act uh, which you know always strikes me as being a, a, a sort of a bad acronym uh, associated with it but the IRA. Um, <laughs> but I think that there, there, there there's also kind of questions around around sort of uh, oil production in the US, right? I think, you know, we're looking at sort of numbers from the Permian and those are kind of coming down. And a lot of that sort of enthusiasm, you know, may sort of be ebbing. And, you know, obviously there's there's an extent to which I would say this, but hey, you know, emerging markets, maybe it's time to uh, rethink uh, Africa's prospects. Uh, that's right. Could Africa come out? Uh, come, I mean, to be fair, we, we have spoken about this already. I mean, Harbour Energy, uh, I'll go back to them because, you know, there was some question about like, yeah, would you ever consider moving your listing from London to elsewhere? And obviously she didn't comment on that directly, but she did say, uh, you see the attractiveness of a place like the US um, because of, as I say, you know, the IRA, etc. And obviously these companies, some of these independents are looking for diversification and uh, growth deals elsewhere in the world. Now, again, with Harbour, it was very much Mexico where they already have some stuff, Southeast Asia, but yeah, could Africa be a be, be a winner when when the UK hasn't seemed to get, doesn't seem to get its industrial policy together? I, I don't know, but uh, it does seem like there will be other geographies that pick up where the UK seems to be leaving off and not so fussed about its oil and gas industry or indeed its energy industry. So a lot of rigs heading to that part of the world at the moment. Eh? Yeah, I chatted to uh, Theresa Wilkie from Westwood recently, who said that they've gone from kind of naught to a not not literally, but not to a hundred there in terms of um, in terms of rigs uh, drilling offshore, especially west coast. So it certainly seems that that's they're already perhaps becoming one of the beneficiaries of 
fiscal meddling. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, sort of seeing, seeing, seeing rigs go to uh, Gulf of Guinea and, and also into the Middle East, right? The number of jackups going into the Middle East is kind of extraordinary. And, you know, because those big NOCs, you know, Aramco, Adnoc, those kind of companies do can take that kind of long-term view. And, and and obviously the success of those oil companies is tied directly to the success of the state in a way which isn't it isn't here, right? There's a, I think that's that's the problem, isn't it? There is a disconnect between the oil and gas production in the North Sea and uh, you know, Westminster's outlook on, on on things. And that and that feels like a disconnect that's not going to be kind of bridged easily. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, thanks both. Um so with all this windfall talk, uh, windfall tax talk and energy supply being somewhat taken for granted, we'll head over next to Ukraine, Russia and Germany for the latest on Nord Stream. In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. Okay, Ed, some incredible revelations about the alleged Nord Stream pipeline sabotage out this week. Uh, bring us up to speed, if you would. It is, uh, as you say, as you say, I said, it is extraordinary. I mean, I think, I think, you know, looking at uh, some of the uh, ways in which this has played out, it feels very much like a like a James Bond film or uh you know like a like a like a sort of an action film doesn't it i mean so so the just to 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 you know reframe a little bit in september last year uh we were all very surprised when uh three of the four nord stream pipelines spontaneously blew up it seemed at the time obviously uh there was uh, there was a lot of speculation then about what could have caused it um obviously given the uh conflict in Ukraine and uh, the increasingly politicized nature of sort of gas supplies into into Germany in particular from Russia uh, there was a lot of speculation. Was it Russia to blame? Uh, the UK, the US did sort of point their fingers to, uh, to, to, to Russian involvement to an extent. There was a, there was an amount of hedging, but you know, obviously, there there was a feeling that uh, that Russia was to blame. And as a result, you know, investigations were ongoing, and we've sort sort of seen some sort of drip feed of information coming out. There was uh, suggestions that yes, it seemed likely that uh, explosives were used, and there's been sort of speculation around uh, what vessels were in the area, and then um, rather controversially, in in February, uh, noted uh, journalist uh, Seymour Hirsch came out and and, and wrote a wrote a piece. Uh, suggesting or really pointing the finger at the US saying uh US special forces had had, had carried out the attack um with a sort of a timed explosive device this story was 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 largely there was a lot of criticism of the story at the time uh, the point people were pointing to the fact that there was very little in the way of uh, of multiple sources um so that the, the the mystery was was still uh, was still rife although obviously a lot of interest kind of going into it 
And then this week, um, reports in the US uh, by the New York Times quoting sort of US intelligence sources and uh, and and, and uh, reports out of Germany pointing the finger at uh, what seems to have been an attack by Ukrainian uh, forces. Now, it's important to note that um, both the US and uh, German reports uh, said that there was no evidence to conclude that there was a sort of a top-level directive from the Ukrainian government, so President Zelensky and other top officials were not as far as we know, implicated in 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 the in the action of this uh, this Ukrainian uh, cell, um, but obviously there's a kind of a question there around if it was Ukrainians, where did the orders come from, uh, and and obviously there's a degree of sort of specialized knowledge. I mean, the Nord Stream is 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 not incredibly deep, but it's about sort of eighty meters or so. The, it's it's in a quite a sort of a tough operating environment so you would need some degree of either presumably military training or sort of pipeline expertise to have been able to carry out that attack so there's there's obviously a lot of questions but as is perhaps inevitable um just as much as the people are saying oh it's a sort of a team of ukrainians there's also been questions oh was it a false flag you know was was it was it someone trying to implicate the Ukrainian government. Um, so I think there's there's a feeling that we're sort of one step uh, down the line in terms of the investigation and, and and how it was carried out. But at the same time, still a lot of uncertainty around actually who ordered the attack, really, which is kind of the the important uh, move, right? I mean, I think um, there's a lot of speculation still about uh, Russian involvement. Um, the Nord, the Russian now having said essentially it's not going to restart the Nord Stream pipelines that there's 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 no impact, and 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 Germany also having got to this point. I mean even it was it was clear even you know the point that in September that you know Germany had had, had really kind of seen the light in terms of sort of moving away from off taking Russian involvement. So it feels like we've made progress, but at the same time uh, we've not made progress. I mean I think I think just the other thing to, to, to note is just like the scale of these pipelines. So the the uh, there are essentially sort of two pipelines under Nord Stream one and the two pipelines under Nord Stream two. In total they can carry about 110 billion cubic meters of gas per year. It which is an extraordinary amount of gas. I mean just to put that in context, the UK uh, last year used something like 75 BCM. So it's 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 an extraordinary attack. It's an extraordinary uh, economic loss. Uh, I think I saw this week that Gas Uni had had, had written off its uh, its its stake in, in Nord Stream. Those pipelines, it looks like, are never going to be actually used again. So what that means for the future, obviously, there are kind of questions around, you know, sort of European demand for for, for Russian gas, but also who benefits, who was it? I don't know. We still don't know. Yeah, I I suspect we're unlikely to get clear answers on this one. Um, I do note the the German minister was being very, very careful with his answers when asked by reporters about that this week. and yeah, as as you say, Ed, I mean, you probably don't want to be speculating too much before uh, any uh, answers or facts are given. But I mean, and it seems that the question is, you know, if it was any kind of Ukraine actor, is it a Ukraine supporter? Is it a Ukrainian government situation? Those two are very, very different. Um, and some serious questions, I think, about Western support, German support. I think German Germany's already given 
nearly 100 tanks over to Ukraine for its war efforts. And as you say, Germany has uh, seen the light and moved away from Russian supply now. But the suggestion of a a Ukrainian actor of some nation, of of some description taking away their option for gas at such a time uh, that would seem to have huge implications and, and really huge questions. As you say, we don't really know, so we don't want to get into that. Although it is a tantalising uh, question to ponder, um, but very serious, yeah. Yeah, it's it's incendiary, isn't it? I mean, particularly at this point, you know, the the kind of German support for Ukraine has been uh, something of a challenge, uh, and and only recently have they said that they would supply those tanks, which obviously uh, Ukraine uh, kind of desperately needs. So. Uh, yes, I think it's 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 uh, a very challenging point uh, to kind of think about um, sort of, you know, German support. And obviously, um, you know, it's kind of uh, music to the ears of, uh, of, of of the Kremlin, who are obviously sort of, you know, trying to drive wedges into uh, in, in, into between Ukraine and its uh, its its international supporters. So I think look there there are so many questions around around who benefits and and who might have done it. And I mean I suspect it might be one of those things that we never actually uh, you know quite get to the bottom of but it does feel like you know we're seeing some progress and uh, it's 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 going to continue being a really interesting story even though it feels unlikely it will actually, you know, drive any any real changes in, in, in how Europe meets its future supply. Whoever did do it is kind of irrelevant, but my, well, it's not irrelevant, but the uh, the tin foil hat brigade have come out in their masses and their droves for this. It's absolute bread and butter, isn't it? I mean, you can, this is proof that the US government have been lying to us and always have been lying to us and that Western governments are wrong to have supported Ukraine and... There's a lot of cranks around, isn't there? There's undoubtedly a Reddit forum right now diving into the uh, the conspiracy theories. And the, I think this is going to be like a Netflix documentary in 10 or 20 years' time with the true story of the Nord Stream sabotage and James Bond with his uh, underwater pipeline. Because as you say, Ed, it seems like <laughs> it must be an immensely technical uh, thing to achieve. So, you know, if nothing else, it'd be interesting to know how that plays out. But okay. Okay, well, thanks, Ed. That is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. For all the latest on these stories and more, be sure to head online to energyvoice.com. In the meantime, thank you to Hamish and to Ed for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com. Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.